to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. It is great to join you again today with another special episode. There's a famous quote, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Very true. And let's see how this applies to drugs. The pattern I see is number one, health claims, number two, normalization, number three, disaster, and number four, lawsuits. Let's apply this pattern to tobacco. Number one, health claims. Tobacco helps you relax. Tobacco helps people who have schizophrenia. And of course, there are no harms and only positive effects from smoking and tobacco. Step two, normalization. Everybody is smoking. Three out of four doctors claim a certain brand of tobacco. Tobacco is handed out to the troops and at psychiatric wards. And even the head of the American Cancer Association poses for a picture holding a cigarette. And hey, no one dies from a puff of smoke, and there's no such thing as secondhand smoke. Step three, disaster. It was 1920 when a German scientist linked tobacco and cancer. And it was only 1964 when the Surgeon General issued a warning on tobacco based on 7,000 medical publications linking tobacco with lung cancer and heart disease. It took another 36 years in the year 2000 when smoking was finally banned on U.S. airplanes. And then finally, step four, the lawsuits. Lawyers come in. Lawsuits started in the 1980s, and the largest settlement was the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement. It was reached in 1998 between the attorney generals of 48 states and four of the largest U.S. tobacco companies, Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, Brown & Williamson, and Lorillard. The settlement was for $206 billion, with a B, over the first 25 years of the agreement. The deal created the advocacy group, the Truth Initiative, and dissolved several of the pro-tobacco groups, such as the Tobacco Institute, Center for Indoor Air Research, and Council for Tobacco Research. The settlement also curtailed marketing practices and was supposed to pay in perpetuity to cover medical costs of caring for people with tobacco-related illnesses. So let's do this history lesson with opioids. Number one, health claims. Painkillers are not just for cancer or end-of-life care. No one should be in pain. On a scale of one to 10, no one should have pain. And finally, the biggest lie, painkillers are not addictive. Those were the health claims. Number two, normalization of use. By 1996, OxyContin was up to $1.1 billion in sales, up from 48 millions. Purdue Pharma doubled its sales representatives over four years and sponsored 40 different national pain management conferences. The disaster, we know the disaster. The disaster is the rising death toll and overdoses of opioids. Hydrocodone became the number one sold drug in America. Opioids were now confirmed to be addictive in 100% of patients, completely opposite the initial 
medical claims. The lawsuit started in 2007. Purdue pleaded guilty to false claims that OxyContin was less addictive and less subject to abuse than other opioids. They paid $634 million, a bargain for Big Pharma. Corruption was uncovered not just in the health claims, but within the federal government. Curtis Wright, director of the FDA, approved the drug OxyContin and then left the agency to work for Purdue Pharma for a high salary. In October 21, 2020, Purdue pled guilty to conspiracy to defraud the United States and violate anti-kickback laws. They settled for $8 billion. Purdue filed for bankruptcy, and the Sackler family, who owned Purdue, were not held liable. Currently, there are nearly 3,000 individual lawsuits filed by local and state governments against various pharmaceutical companies for knowingly and intentionally conspiring to aid doctors in dispensing medications without a legitimate purpose. Let's repeat history with vaping and Juul. Number one, health claims. Vaping helps people stop to smoke. Juul bought out Medical Journal for $51,000, the American Journal of Health Behavior, and paid for studies as it was waiting for its FDA approval. Step two, normalization. In a study from 2019, 25.5% of 12th graders and nearly 10% of 8th graders were vaping in the past month. And now disaster. Maybe we recall that before COVID pandemic, we had an epidemic of E-Valley of vaping, where 68 people died and over 2,000 people were hospitalized from vaping. And now the lawsuits. Recently, $40 million were settled with North Carolina for targeting youth. They found that the Juul company was making various flavors attractive to youth and advertising on children's websites. I think you're getting this pattern from history. Health claims, normalizations, disaster, lawsuits. Let's do this with marijuana. Health claims, so many health claims for marijuana. Normalization, everyone's doing it. Disaster, 70 to 50% of people get addicted. There are deaths. There are over 30,000 publications on the harms. And now we're waiting for the wrongful death lawsuits. What can we learn from history? Well, for industry, they learn that lying pays off monetarily. For individuals, for you, what can you learn? No one cares about you except for you. You should care about yourself the most, and you have to protect yourself and your loved ones from big industry profiteering at the cost of your health. With that, let's hear our question from Dr. Chad Bernhardt, a concerned physician. Hey, Rini. Thanks for all your advocacy on safe prescribing. My question for High Truths is about the opioid settlement dollars. It seemed that the tobacco settlement money really didn't get to the people directly damaged by tobacco. What have we learned about the tobacco settlement cases that we can now apply to the opioid settlements? Thank you, Dr. Bernhardt, for your great and important question. And thank you also for serving patients with compassion and wisdom as an emergency physician on the front lines. I have the perfect high truth expert for your question, someone who knows opioids and someone who is very familiar with these lawsuits, Dr. Andrew Kolodny. 
Dr. Andrew Kalani is a psychiatrist and the medical director of the Opioid Policy Research at Heller School of Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. In May 2014, he testified in Congress on America's addiction to opioids. He's also the executive director of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. He previously served as chief medical officer for Phoenix House, a nonprofit addiction treatment agency, and chair of psychiatry at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Kolodny began his career working for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene in the office of the executive deputy commissioner. His bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Kolodny, welcome to High Truths. Thanks for having me. It is wonderful to see you again after some uh, years and for being our high truths expert. You have been involved in the issue of opioids for many years, way before the medical community was aware that we had a prescription opioid problem. What first alerted you to the problems with opioids? You know, I uh, began working on drug overdose deaths in New York City in around 2003. Uh, it was my my first job out of medical training. Uh, was working for New York City's health department. New York City had just merged its mental health department with its public health department into this single agency. And Mayor Bloomberg and Tom Frieden, the health commissioner at the time, had decided that they were going to add a new metric for judging the health department, along with the older metrics like infant mortality and uh, metrics on communicable diseases, they were going to add this new metric, death from drug overdose. And I started about a week after they came up with that metric, and they gave me the assignment of reducing deaths from, from drug overdoses, which you know, at first seemed like an impossible task. How could a, a young psychiatrist working in lower Manhattan prevent somebody from injecting too much heroin in the South Bronx? It just it didn't seem at all feasible. Uh, of course, the more we thought about it, the more there were interventions that could reduce overdose deaths, interventions like making naloxone more available and making addiction treatment more available. Uh, but while working on that issue, uh, I became interested in addiction treatment because it was a way of certainly an, an important way of reducing drug overdose deaths. I began to do some clinical work. And when I started treating opioid addiction, initially I assumed the patients that would come to me would be patients from the parts of New York City that had been hit hardest with heroin in the 70s, uh, the South Bronx, Central Brooklyn, East Harlem. I assumed I was going to be treating mostly older, non-white men from low-income communities. Instead, the patients who came to see me for uh, treatment, uh, for, for, for opioid addiction treatment, particularly with buprenorphine, were overwhelmingly middle-class patients from white neighborhoods, uh, from Queens, from Staten Island, from New Jersey, from Long Island. And they were all addicted to uh, prescription opioids. Uh, some had become addicted through medical treatment. Some had become addicted through recreational use because the pills were so much more available. And so I realized something was going on. And because I was working for New York City's health department, I was plugged into some of the federal 
reports that were coming out at the time, uh, they were called Dawn Reports, which stood for Drug uh, Addiction Warning Network, I think, uh, or Drug Abuse Warning Network. And I saw some of the data showing that it, in other parts of the country, th- there had been this enormous exponential increase in visits to emergency rooms involving prescription opioids and in deaths involving prescription opioids. So I was sort of in a place where I could see earlier than many of my other colleagues that we had a very serious problem that had emerged with prescription opioids. Wow. You know, you got involved way earlier than I have. I remember maybe 2007, 2008, uh, I was invited to speak about why physicians, me among them, are giving all these opioids from the emergency department. And in preparation for that talk, I counted that 20% of my patients were there because of some type of pain complaint requesting for opioids. Um, so that was that was a lot. So um, very insightful for you. To, and that's why you're one of our nation's leaders um, on this epidemic. You were really noticed it way before um, the rest of the medical community has. And, you know, I feel like the medical community, again, me, one of them, was duped into prescribing. I'm, I know that I gave prescriptions to people who may even have died um, with good intentions. And that is because, you know, opioids were claimed to be, you know, God's gift to pain. Nobody should be in pain. A scale of one to 10, you should, nobody should have pain. Um, and that became a disaster. And that was highlighted in the crime of the century, because that was the crime of the century, this false health claim. And the, the title of the HBO special by Alex Gibney, did this documentary uncover anything that you didn't already know? Uh, it, it did. Uh, there were certainly a fair amount uh, that I was familiar with about the way in which the industry, uh, opioid manufacturers, Purdue Pharma, Endo, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and others, the way that they had uh, deceptively promoted their products, both uh, the way they deceptively promoted their branded products, but also the way that they promoted an unbranded campaign to change the way the medical community thought about opioids as a class of drug. A lot of that uh, I was familiar with the work with their front groups and key opinion leaders. And you know what you just said, said uh, a moment ago about how you were duped. Um, you know, I, I think that can really be hard for lay people to believe that that doctors could be duped so easily we're supposed to be smart how people can have a hard time believing that drug companies could have fooled us so easily and what i think they don't recognize is that this campaign went well beyond a, a drug rep for a company visiting you in the emergency room and telling you patients don't get addicted, you would have been less gullible if it was if that's all there was. We were hearing these messages about opioids that that we need to be prescribing more that that patients are suffering needlessly because we've been yeah, too stingy. I, it was I was told I'm not compassionate. If you don't do this, you're not compassionate, doctor. That's right. And you weren't just told this by a drug rep. You were hearing that right. message from your state medical from your board, colleagues. from your professional societies, from your colleagues, right. from medical journals, from editorials, from every direction, 
you're hearing that if you're a compassionate doctor in the know, you'll be different from those stingy puritanical doctors who would let patients suffer. And, and of course, that all led to this dramatic change in, in practice, uh, this aggressive prescribing that, that led to an epidemic of addiction. What was new for me from uh, the crime of the century and, and their investigation was uh, some details related to the approval of OxyContin. So I had known, and, and I think Barry Meyer in his book, Painkiller had uncovered long ago that the same FDA official involved in the medical review of OxyContin, of the application for OxyContin, that he wound up working for Purdue after leaving FDA. That was already well known, and I knew that. Curtis, but, Curtis White, right, right? That's correct, Curtis Wright. But what was uncovered, uh, uh, by in the Gibney documentary was that Curtis Wright didn't just approve OxyContin and then go work for Purdue, but it appears that uh, Purdue, uh, thanks to Curtis Wright, actually did the review on its own drug instead of the FDA looking carefully at the evidence on safety and effectiveness and deciding whether or not it met the standard outlined by law. Uh, instead, it was Purdue, it appears to have been Purdue and an FDA official meeting privately in a hotel room near the FDA, writing the review of its own application. Wow. Yeah, that, that does uh, smell like a conflict of interest, at least. Yes. Um, let's fast forward uh, where, you know, Physicians were uh, writing for prescriptions, well-meaning physicians, um, and we entered this opioid epidemic where now everyone's aware um, that this was a, a bad trend. And that leads us to Dr. Chad Bernhardt's question, which is, it seems that the tobacco settlement money did not get directly to the people damaged by tobacco. We, we've, we've lived through this before. There were health claims on tobacco, people died, and now lawsuits. So what, what have we learned from the tobacco settlement cases that we can now apply to the opioid settlement cases and the lawsuits um, based on the deception uh, of those health claims and the damage? Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I am concerned that like with the tobacco litigation where some of the funds never actually got utilized appropriately for preventing or treating a, a nicotine addiction. Um, I am concerned that with some of these, uh, in some of the state cases against opioid manufacturers and distributors, that the money from a settlement or a judgment, if it goes all the way through a trial, that that money might not be used to address the opioid crisis as it should. Uh, the money should be used to abate the problem that the defendants in the litigation caused. Um, one of the problems is that these cases, the state cases, are brought forward by a state attorney general. And um, when the case, if it's successful and there's money that comes into the state, it's not state attorney generals that are typically able to appropriate money or to decide how a state spends its money, that's typically done by a state legislature. 
And so what can happen in these cases is the money comes in and the attorney general may want to spend that money to abate the epidemic using a plan that was put forward in the litigation. But a state legislature can come around and say, hey, that's not your money. That's our money. AGs don't decide how money gets spent. State legislators decide. And now you could certainly have state legislators that say, yes, this money from the opioid litigation should be used to address the opioid crisis and and want to fund a plan that might have been put forward to the court. But it's also certainly possible for a state legislature to say, hey, we're going to use that money to fill potholes or we're going to use that money to give everybody a tax cut. I mean, it's, there's no way to prevent that. It's I think there might be ways of preventing it. And um, there's an effort that I, I think Shatterproof is leading right now to ensure to better ensure that the opioid litigation money gets used for the opioid crisis. But it, it's tricky. It's 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 very hard to do. But one thing I one lesson I think from the tobacco litigation that's really important here is that aside from the money, uh, one of the benefits of the tobacco litigation was that the public learned through the tobacco litigation all of the ways in which big tobacco had lied. Uh, the, the public learned about how big tobacco falsely claim that smoking doesn't cause cancer or claim that nicotine is not addictive or targeted adolescents or manipulated nicotine levels. And when the public learned about all of the those actions, I think it helped change attitudes about smoking in the United States. What I believe was a benefit from the tobacco litigation was that I believe it led many Americans to quit smoking, and I think it prevented mer- many Americans from picking up. And so aside from the, there was certainly um, a fair amount of money that went to an organization that did uh, prevention uh, targeted at adolescents. It was originally, I think, called the Legacy Foundation, and today it's called the Truth Initiative, which has done terrific smoking prevention work. But I, I think the public learning about what big tobacco did through the litigation, through the internal documents that became public, I think helped change attitudes towards smoking and had an enormous public health benefit. I'm hopeful that with the litigation against the opioid industry, that you know, assuming more records become public instead of sealed or shredded, the more the public can learn about how this all happened, I think the more it can help change attitudes about popping an opioid painkiller every time you have an ache or a pain, and which could go a very long way toward preventing future cases of opioid addiction. And so there's there's several lawsuits that are out there right now um, all over the country, and you're involved as an expert in some of them. Can you tell us about uh, some of those cases? I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm limited in in what I can really uh, say about these cases, uh, at least in terms of my my role. I am helping out in a few of these cases, uh, and these are cases that have been brought against companies that manufacture opioids, uh, like Johnson and Johnson, or that did manufacture opioids. Johnson and Johnson 
was clever in that when opioid prescribing began to trend down and when uh, awareness was raised about the epidemic of opioid addiction, they very conveniently began to get themselves out of the opioid uh, business. Uh, and these are cases against uh, companies like Endo uh, Pharmaceuticals or Malincrot. Uh, and um, there, are, there are also uh, cases against the companies that distributed opioids, companies like Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, McKesson. These are uh, among the wealthiest corporations in the world, drug distributors. Uh, uh, the, these are companies that many of us have never even heard of, but they're they're in the fortune top 50 or, or um, and these are multinational billion dollar uh, companies that played an important role in fueling the opioid crisis. And more recently, some of the chain pharmacies have been included. In, in the litigation and there are other defendants. And the main argument that the government, state governments are, are making in these cases is that the defendant's actions led to a massive oversupply of opioids or a massive overexposure of our population to this highly addictive class of drug resulting in an epidemic of opioid addiction and overdose deaths. So um, some of these companies, and uh, infamously, we know about the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, are they notoriously evil or are they just simply good at marketing and, and capitalism? You know, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I'm not crazy about the word evil, um, I, but I, I think the word greed, greed. Deceptive? I'm sorry? Greed. Deceptive, I was thinking, yeah. maybe. Or? Uh, yeah, I, I would say I think the word the rather than evil, I would say greed, and I think that certainly um, the the executives at these uh, working for these corporations um, that made decisions that led to a massive loss of life. Um, I think they were driven largely by greed. And, you know, I, I don't know how much fault should lie with the companies in the sense that, you know, I, the, we have regulatory agencies because I think there is, should be an expectation that sometimes individuals and corporations will behave badly will will um are that sometimes they would be willing to put profits ahead of human life and that's why we have regulatory agencies uh, to protect the public from companies that might act unethically greedy illegally and uh, which is what happened i believe in all of these cases and yet our regulatory agency particularly the fda i think also failed to ensure that um, these companies um, uh, behaved appropriately and, and legally and ethically. And so I, I think there was, I, I believe that these companies were, are certainly largely to blame. And I think it, their, their behavior was driven by, by greed. And in many cases, um, the actions that they took, uh, although I'm not a lawyer, I believe were illegal. Uh, certainly unethical. 
And but I think we 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 should have been able to stop them. But we saw that with big tobacco, right? All the health claims and and they, you know, they they were found guilty of of lying to the public about health claims and minimizing the damage and the same thing with opioids. Um, but you you mentioned the FDA and lack of um, regulation. You've been a critic and outspoken about corruption within the FDA. What what should they be doing that they're not? Yeah, I think that there was a time when FDA may have been the best regulatory agency of of a pharma, of the pharmaceutical industry in the world. Um, for example when other countries approved and allowed thalidomide to be marketed, the United States kept it off the market here. And, uh, and, and th- tell our, our audience what that is. Uh, thalidomide uh, was a drug that was prescribed to uh, pregnant women, I think, to help with some of the symptoms of, of morning sickness uh, and mm-hmm. it was um, in other countries, it was approved and prescribed and led to horrible limb defects and, and a generation uh, born with, with terrible uh, limb, limb defects. And, and um, many of these infants didn't, didn't survive, is my understanding. Uh, the uh, company, by the way, Grunenthal, that introduced thalidomide um, has been a uh, a very big player in promoting opioids aggressively around the world. Uh, so they're, they're still a b- very bad actor. But in the United States, I believe it was in the 1960s, we had an FDA medical reviewer who had the thalidomide application and refused to approve the drug. She didn't believe that, th- that we had enough evidence of safety. She was very concerned about risks of the drug and despite pressure, I believe, from Grunenthal to get the drug approved, she she resisted. And good for um, her. Yeah, and and really is a public health hero. And I, I think that you know at, those were the glory days of the Food and Drug Administration. What's happened in recent years, though, is that I believe in many ways the Food and Drug Administration has been captured by the by the industry it's supposed to to regulate. Part of the problem has to do with simply the way that the FDA is funded, or at least the division within FDA that approves drugs. Uh, it's actually the pharmaceutical industry that pays to have its drugs approved. It's through something called the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. And you know, I think when Congress passed that law, um, it may have made sense to members of Congress that, hey, it's very expensive to get to approve to for this process to review a drug application and these companies make so much money when their products get approved you know what why should the taxpayer foot the bill make the drug companies pay to have their own products approved but what would happen over time particularly as the pharmaceutical industry would lobby congress was that they began to demand greater customer service for all the fees that they were paying. They wanted their drugs approved faster and faster. And I think the culture within FDA began to change from the role of regulating this industry to a role of providing them with good customer service and getting their applications reviewed 
very quickly. And there's been a tremendous revolving door problem where FDA officials um, go from working for FDA to then taking a, a much higher paying job working for the companies whose products that they were reviewing. And you know, if you're reviewing the product for a company that you may hope will be your future employer, that may give you an incentive to make decisions that the company is going to, to like. I think one of the most current examples is FDA's approval of a new Alzheimer's drug, which- Yeah, that's um, hot on the news. <laughs> that's, that's right. A drug which is not effective, was not proven effective in the studies that are supposed to demonstrate efficacy, and a drug that has very significant side effects where it can cause brain swelling. The yeah. outside experts who were advised FDA said, don't approve this product. The risks outweigh the benefits. It's more likely to harm a patient than help a patient. And yet FDA went ahead and approved that drug anyway. And I think, you know, like its opioid decision-making, this is another example of the FDA putting the interests of drug companies ahead of public health. You know, it's really troublesome for to hear this because as a physician, as, as a clinician, I treat patients. I, I count on the FDA. I count on the fact that the product uh, insert is correct. And when I prescribe something and you get it from the pharmacy, it's it's uh, I count on that safety. And it's the only safety we have in the entire world right now. It's not perfect. Um, so I'm troubled by the demonizing FDA because that means the public and the medical community has nothing that they can trust. Um, a and absolutely. And, and think about how important it is right now in the context of uh, COVID, where COVID, we, we right, have the CDC. Like, what, yes, the CDC today is urging people who are unvaccinated to, to get vaccinated. The public has to be able to trust our FDA. And when you have an FDA that's been overly friendly to industry that approves drugs that are, have not been proven safe and effective, how do you have the public then trust that our vaccines are, are safe and effective? And so, the, so there are enormous public health consequences when you don't have a drug, re drug regulator that the public but uh, can trust. But it's not, just, it's not just the drugs, the FDA, because that, that translates to the medical community. Then the public doesn't trust the doctors and then they'll go see quacks and and listen to anything a free-for-all with medicine instead of the it really degrades the entire medical profession that's right. um, and by the way if anybody's listening i've been vaccinated right away <laughs> all my family has it's not a political issue it's a good vaccine um it's protected me otherwise i would have been dead long ago from covid with all the patients that i've treated with with covid that's right and there are um, people there are people losing their lives right now because they don't trust the vaccine particularly yeah, it's, with it's, the delta variant um, and so, uh, again, I, I, I think maybe there would be more trust in the vaccine, which there should be because the, the vaccine is safe and effective. But, uh, you know, if, if our Food and Drug Administration was doing a better job, perhaps more people would be willing to take the vaccine. So I still have to be a fan of the FDA because I, I 
do think that they're more good than bad. Yes, they can be some improvements, but overall, it's way better to get your medicine from a doctor and a pharmacy than from your, you know, your marijuana dispensary or, or your friends over the internet. Um, so I, I still believe in that um, in the medical community and the FDA, even though, as you point out, um, there there can be some greed on all ends, um, and it can be improved. What what about and you know when you talk about this we talked about COVID and opioids, Juul is another one right we're seeing all these you know lawsuits on Juul products advertising to kids buying medical journals for their health claims I think that that's also the biggest another huge public health disaster for every one smoker who maybe maybe stops smoking we've created eighty new adolescents who otherwise would never have smoked addicted to a new drug. Um, and I, I see that analogy with Juul. I see that now with the big marijuana industry following in the same pattern with the same, we're repeating history where there are health claims. It's normalized to use. Uh, we're collecting now all the, the disasters, the health disasters from um, marijuana and uh, waiting for the lawsuits to happen with that. Yeah, I, I think do, you're, I do, think do you agree right. with that. I, I, I do. I think that uh, with the cannabis industry, um, there is no way that the, that, uh, the industry would succeed if people smoked cannabis modestly. If someone were to smoke uh, cannabis or, or consume cannabis uh, in a small quantity a couple of times a month, if that's all that happened in states where cannabis is legalized, um, th the industry would go under. The way in which the industry can succeed, uh, the way in which states who are who think that this is going to be a, a windfall in terms of tax revenue, the the, uh, the way that they'll get that tax revenue will not be off of someone who uses a cannabis product a couple of times a month. The way that they will earn their revenue will be off of the people who become addicted to it, the people who are smoking and consuming cannabis products all day long. Cannabis is, is very inexpensive to produce. It's called weed for, for a reason. And so the, the, the way profits will be earned will be off of consumption of large quantities by people who are addicted to it. And so you are creating, when you legalize this, um, uh, you are giving the, these industries a financial incentive to get people hooked on their products and I, I think clearly adolescents are going to be the ones who, who pay the heaviest price uh, for, for this. Yeah. And, and to link cannabis with opioids, um, you know, I have not met um, a patient who was lucky enough to survive an overdose from fentanyl. And when I talked to them, they, they all started with marijuana at a young age. I haven't met one that hasn't. So it like primes the brain um, for that. I, at the peak of the pandemic, I went and visited a cannabis dispensary. Um, it's a, a marijuana was considered an essential public service in uh, California. And uh, that same day I went to Walmart to go shopping and the place was empty. And then uh, uh, we went to visit a cannabis dispensary and the place was hopping. Um, and the consequences of that were seen in the emergency department. Hmm. So very sad. Um, you are the um, chief uh, executive officer of 
PROP, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. You started that uh, at the very, very beginning, the opioid pandemic. And my question is now, as I tell people and I show people statistics that the opioid prescription epidemic is over, we are really low. The medical community has really heard the cry and the problem with the opioid epidemic and prescriptions are really low and dropping significantly every year. Um, And is this battle with opioid prescriptions, not the opioid epidemic, because we have record number of deaths from fentanyl, but that's not coming from the medical community. As far as the medical community's role um, in opioid deaths, is that battle over? No. And uh, just just to clarify, by the way, I, I, I was one of uh, several co-founders of, of PROP and and a physicians for responsible opioid prescribing. And I'm, I'm currently not the executive director. We, we actually, for the first time recently, hired a real executive director, someone who, who works for us. Um, I was a volunteer executive uh, director for, for a while. Um, my, so I'm, I'm currently the vice president, one of the vice presidents for, for PROP. Uh, so you know, we, uh, prescribing, you're correct, has trended in the in the right direction. Uh, the medical community is prescribing more cautiously than we were a few years ago, and since 2012, prescribing has been trending in the right direction. But we are still massively overprescribing. There is no other country on earth that comes even close to prescribing as much opioids as we do in the United States. And since we continue to prescribe opioids so aggressively, what I believe that means is that we still have a high incidence rate, meaning new cases of opioid use disorder in this country. I think the number of people becoming newly opioid addicted this year will be certainly lower than it would have been in 2011 at the height of opioid prescribing, I think less Americans became addicted to newly addicted to opioids, say in, in 2020 than they did in 2011. But the number in 2020 that became newly addicted is still much too high. We still have a long way to go before we get to rational levels of opioid prescribing. And if people, if we still keep getting more people hooked it means this problem will never really come to an end. And so you are right that the opioid most likely to be found in a decedent's toxicology uh, and an overdose decedent's toxicology is now an illicit opioid, illicitly synthesized fentanyl or a fentanyl analog is more likely to be found nationally than a prescription opioid. That's that's true, but the vast majority of people who die of an opioid overdose are people who had opioid addiction. Not everybody who dies of an overdose was addicted. I, I know of people, uh, of cases mm-hmm. of people who, for example, a, a friend of mine involved in advocacy lost his daughter. Uh, she was 18. She was not addicted. She just made the mistake of experimenting with a very strong opioid and had no tolerance and and died of an overdose. Um, But uh, deaths like that tend to be the exception. The majority of the deaths occur in people who have the disease of opioid addiction, which is a preventable, treatable condition. And when you look at people who have become opioid addicted over the past 20, 25 years, the vast majority of these individuals 
develop their opioid addiction from prescription opioids, not heroin or, or fentanyl. So yes, we the I think the the way to really think about our opioid crisis is as an addiction epidemic, and I think that prescription opioids are still a major driver of new cases of opioid addiction. My my plea to the medical community, also when I was chief medical officer at ONDCP and, and now we're creating curriculum for the medical community, is safe prescribing. That includes not just opioids, but any the combination of CNS depressants, opioids, benzodiazepines, sleep aids, cannabis products, all these things are additive. And while, yes, we have to be compassionate for the disease of addiction, whether it's opioid disorder, methamphetamine disorder, any um, of the addictions that people have, and, and those people deserve to have compassionate treatment without stigma. As far as the supply chain, and you're, you were mentioning the, the supply chain of the medical community of overprescribing opioids, I, I think we should shift that not just to opioids, but to safe prescribing all CNS depressants um, in combination. And as um, you know, the research that I did was on death diaries, looking at why people died. Most people die of a combination of, 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 of for looking just medications, deaths, combination of medications, not, not just opioids alone, although you're right that opioids are the, 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 the driving um, force in the, in those deaths. So yeah, yeah, there are other uh, controlled substances um, that are also overprescribed. In fact, I would say that all of the controlled substances uh, are overprescribed. We we are massively overprescribing amphetamines in the United States and benzodiazepines, yeah. and we probably and it's probably not just controlled drugs that we uh, overprescribe as well. I think we have. A culture in the United States, which I think is driven largely by pharmaceutical marketing, um, th that has Americans thinking that the answer to just about every problem is a pill. And so, I agree with you. We yeah. are very much a pill happy society. We have yeah. a pill for everything, and 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 uh, you're right. You're right about that. Um, I really thank you for, for joining us. I think that there's a lot of things I'd love to continue and collaborate uh, with you. Um, you know, talking about getting rid of the X waiver. We're talking about um, fentanyl testing included in all drug tests, safe prescribing, um, uh, talking about the harms of marijuana. So I think that a lot of things, well, you know, I think you and I started really and you taught me a lot uh, about opioids. Um, this has expanded to drug safety and treatment of addiction that goes goes even beyond opiates. Agreed. And I'd be happy to continue the conversation on those subjects with you at some other time. That would be great. That's great. And I want to um, thank Dr. Bernhardt. He's an emergency physician um, who has a very tough job working in the inner city with a challenging population. I worked with Dr. Bernhardt for many years and he could bring calm and confidence to his patients and the emergency department, despite the chaotic environment. And I really thank you, Dr. Andrew Kolodny. Thank you for your advocacy, um, for the education you've had to the public and to me personally. And I wish you continued success and always open to collaboration. Well, th thank you for the, the kind words and thank you for the opportunity to be on your uh, show. This was great. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. 
If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.